Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today's show will be on language acquisition for internationally adopted kids. There are really few resources online or anywhere, actually, uh, on how internationally adopted kids acquire language, develop language once uh, they are brought home. I think you're going to enjoy the show. Here's an example of some of what you're going to hear today. The process of converting to learning the English language happens very, very quickly in these children. And so when I'm seeing a child who's newly arrived, who's adopted at an older age, I want to see a really rapid takeoff in language. And to the point where after they're home six months, they're understanding most day-to-day, easy social interaction conversations when you're talking about the here and now. Um, They're able to converse in um, sentences, even though those sentences may have a lot of grammatical errors. They're able to be understood. Um, Most of the sounds that they produce in those sentences are um, intelligible. That doesn't mean that every sound is correct, but just that you're able to um, follow them fairly clearly. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education Organization. Our mission is to provide support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption or fertility treatment to help create strong families. And you can get all of our many, many resources online at creatingafamily.org. You can also go there and subscribe to this radio show so that it will automatically appear in your phone, on your computer, on your iPod, on your tablet, whatever. It's a great way. Uh, Then you can make the decision whether or not to uh, listen to that show, but it's automatically there so you don't have to remember. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. We have come to the end now. You guys who have procrastinated uh, submitting your video for the Heart to Heart video contest have waited long enough. The time is nigh, so you need to get your uh, video uh, in, uh, and uh, you can do that by going to the hearttoheartcontest.com website. The theme is Have Heart, Share Hope. I uh, really hope that you will submit your video. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing you unbiased education and support on this journey you are on. We have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, and they place children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, that's Georgia, by the way, the country, 
Bulgaria, Georgia, the country, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, Serbia, and Ukraine. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoption. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years. They have offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky, and they provide international adoption, domestic adoption, foster adoption, and embryo donation. We have Bethany Christian Services. They are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering children and families. They're committed to quality social services along the child welfare continuum, and their services range from pregnancy counseling and family preservation to foster care and adoption. And we have independent adoption centers. Their mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families, and they work with families in all 50 states, and they're fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. We have Children's Connection, Inc. They're an adoption agency with offices well, throughout Texas, uh, literally throughout Texas, and they provide domestic infant adoption, embryo donation. They can also do home studies and post-adoption support for families throughout the U.S. And we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. He is a South Carolina firm committed to uh, adoption law as well as assisted reproductive law. And if you have, um, we also have uh, many other great sponsors. Uh, and I would remind you that it is truly through their generosity that allows us to bring you this show. So we ask that when you're choosing an adoption or infertility service provider, please consider going to the Creating a Family Directories and using one there. You can find them on the Service Provider page of our website. You can search by location, countries they may have a program in, services provided, just a lot of things that you should think are important and we do think are important when you're choosing. Uh, by using these directories, you support those who direct us and who, directs, who support us, and we thank you. Today's show is a re-airing of a great show from our archives on language acquisition in internationally adopted kids. Uh, most often, children adopted from abroad do not speak any English when they arrive home, and parents are often wondering what they can do to help their child uh, acquire English as rapidly and as thoroughly as possible. Our guest today uh, is Dr. Sharon Glennon. She is a professor and chairperson of the Department of Audiology, Speech, and Language Pathology and Deaf Studies at Towson University in Maryland. Uh, Dr. Glennon's specialty, her research uh, uh, emphasis, is on how children adopted from abroad acquire English uh, after adoption. I think you're really going to uh, find this show fascinating. So without further ado, I bring you uh, this Dr. Glennon on uh, the show from our archives. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Dr. Glennon, to, creati to Creating a Family. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, as I told you right before the show, I am so excited about this show because I am I really find this topic fascinating. Um and I'm gonna start with a question because it's such it's a good general question for us just to kind of jump in. Uh this is from Carmen. She says we are adopting a six year old from China. How long does it take for a child to become fluent in English? Uh, so that's just a nice general question to begin with. She's uh and I have a feeling that the answer is going to have to be uh, uh qualified depending on many fa many factors. Um so uh how long usually do you see uh it take for children to uh, acquire English as a as a language? Oh my, that's that's a uh, very uh, tough question to answer. Um, it, well, you may need to qualify, it, and that's and certainly by I, age and other things. So feel free. I'm going to. Um, 
Certainly we know that the children who come at really young ages uh, learn language very, very quickly. When I, when I first started doing my research, um, and as part of my research what I do is follow children as soon as they are adopted and follow them up through the um, eight or nine year age level and track their language development over time. And when I first started, I'm not sure what I was expecting because I'm an internationally adopted parent myself, but uh, the rate that the children who come home at very young ages learn English just, you know, I used to fall off my chair watching some of them, you know, home three and six months and, and how quickly they were acquiring English. So one of our rules of thumb is if a child is adopted under the age of two, um, you pretty much would expect them to be fully caught up in comprehending English uh, within one year of coming home. And then their ability to produce the English language lags a little bit, but not much. But by the time they're home two years, they should be fully caught up. And that doesn't mean that after one or two years home, they're fully where they're going to be for the rest of their lives in terms of catch-up. We do see a little bit of incremental um, growth um, after that point in children. But if you test them and you look at their language, you should see absolutely normal skills that quickly. The more complicated picture is for the children adopted at, at much older ages. Um, I'm currently uh, looking at children who are adopted at ages three, four, and five and following them up through the um, school age years to see what happens. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of these older children that we've uh, looked at, so we don't have um, absolute answers. Um, if, if someone's bringing home a one-year-old and they want to know when should my child have acquired English, I can be very clear at saying, well, if, if they're not there by the time they're two, we need to start figuring out what's going on. For a six-year-old who's coming from China, um, I can't definitively say, well, within two years or three years, I would expect her English to be fully caught up. But what I can say, based on the children that I've been following, is that the process of converting to learning the English language happens very, very quickly in these children. And so when I'm seeing a child who's newly arrived, who's adopted at an older age, I want to see a really rapid takeoff in language. And to the point where after they're home six months, they're understanding most day-to-day -day easy social interaction conversations when you're talking about the here and now. Um, they're able to converse in um, sentences, even though those sentences may have a lot of grammatical errors. They're able to be understood. Um, most of the sounds that they produce in those sentences are um, intelligible. That doesn't mean that every sound is correct, but just that you're able to um, follow them fairly clearly. Um, with the older children I follow, um, even some of the five-year-olds, usually within one year of adoption, if I test their comprehension of English, it falls within the normal range. Now, that doesn't mean that it's fully normal. Um, so, for example, if I'm giving a test um, and 100 is an average score for a child who speaks English their entire life, um, a six-year-old coming from China is not going to score 100 within one year of coming home. But I would expect her to be falling within the low range of the normal limit. Um, if I was testing comprehension of language. And so I get most worried in the first year after a child comes home um, with the children who aren't picking up on understanding English quickly. Uh, for these older kids, if the pronunciation and, and the uh, grammar and things are still um, issues two years out post-adoption, that's not as much of a concern to me. And in grammar as well. 
Um, this is a question from Shelley. She says, our daughter, age seven, was adopted from Ethiopia and arrived in the U.S. three months ago. She spoke a regional language called Afar uh, until the age of six and then spoke limited uh, Amharic, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, for one year in a care center. Now in the U.S., we are noticing a couple of things. One, she often stutters in order to get our... in order to articulate a word, including her own name. And two, she seems to forget words that she was able to say previously, i.e. colors and shapes. We are wondering if these are normal benchmarks of new language acquisition or indications of a speech and language issue. Thank you for your thoughts and insights. We love the show. Um, Okay, Okay. so this this child's been home a year? No, three months. Catch that right in the question. Three months. Okay. Three months. Okay, yeah, three months home, I have no expectations. (laughs) So I have no expectations. Um, The stuttering is um, something that I see a lot in older internationally adopted children when they first come home. Um, It's not true stuttering as in someone who, um, you know, is born and starts studying early on. It's really what we call a word retrieval issue. So she's bright enough to know that there's a word out there that means what I want to say. Um, She's bright enough to know what she wants to communicate, but because she's in the process of learning English, she can't retrieve the words and put her thoughts together quickly enough to formulate a thought without putting a lot of pauses and ums and and sometimes, again, stuttering um, words where you're going, but, 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 but I want to go to the store. Um, And so I see the stuttering um, issue happening a lot when children are in this early having difficulty formulating language stage when they first come home. Um, The learning words and forgetting words is also very typical during the first few months. Um, I always say to parents, think of yourself. If you suddenly got thrown into a foreign country and three months later someone was going to see how well you spoke that language, um, think how hard that process would be for you. And so I know when I was learning a foreign language in college, I could learn a word one day, but if I didn't practice it over and over and over again, I might forget it the next day. Oh, and then when it gets retaught again, I learn it. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised in these early learning stages uh, to see a lot of that going on. And hopefully after she's home closer to a year, um, as I said before, I would expect to see her comprehension of most of what's being said to her, if it's in the here and now, being pretty good, you're still going to have a lot of language formulation problems one year post-adoption with a child coming home at age seven. Here's a question that I want to spend some time with, and this is from Sophie. She said, we adopted our daughter from China at almost two years of age, eight years ago. She was amazing at picking up English. By the time she had been here one year, she was almost on the same language level as other three-year-olds. She showed no delays until she was in first grade. She is now in third grade and is behind in all language areas, reading, writing, and even oral expression. We are getting her help, and she is doing okay. But I wondered if this type of delay is common in internationally adopted kids. Could we have done anything different to have prevented this problem? So let's take she's asked two questions. One, um, <clears throat> language delays in school for children who were adopted even at a young age, before the age of two. Um, do you see that very often? Um, not, we do and we don't. So if we take a group of internationally adopted children, and, and, and again, looking at the children who I've studied over time, and I, and I watch them develop from, 
you know, as I say, fresh off the plane up through ages eight and nine. Um, what I, if you took that group of children and you said what percentage of them are going to have difficulty with language when they get to school age, um, and it, are, will there be more of them having difficulty than if we look at a group of non-adopted children? What you'll find is that slightly more of the internationally adopted children will have struggles when they get to school age. It's not so much different from kids who were never adopted, um, but it's just enough that it's, you know, there are noticeable differences and, and slightly more of the children do have issues um, by the time they get to school age. Would it be statistically um, significant? Uh, probably if I collected a big enough sample, it would be. Um, okay. So what, what I'm seeing is when we look at a normal population, we usually say about 12% of them will have uh, language learning difficulties when they get to school. When I'm looking at the internationally adopted population, it's a little bit closer to 20%. Um, that still means that 80% of the kids are doing just fine, but we have slightly more children who are struggling by the time we get to school age. Um, one of the issues that uh, we started to notice, um, those of us who look at uh, language learning, is um, the school systems that a lot of these children fall into. And, and, and that goes back to the question of what is typical, what is normal. So if you look at an entire population of children who were born in the U.S. and speaking English, and you test your internationally adopted children and you compare them against those children, the internationally adopted children look, look well. They're, you know, the majority of them are doing fine compared to um, children who have been speaking English their entire lives. But as many adoptive parents know, um, you have to have a fairly deep pockets to uh, finance an international adoption. Um, many of these families are living in neighborhoods where the socioeconomic status is high, the education of the families living around them is high, and so where the normal score on a test may be 100, if we look at the whole population of the United States, the children who feed into a particular school that a lot of the internationally adopted children are in, that normal score may be 115. And so the children are doing better than average that are coming from the surrounding communities, and our internationally adopted children are just performing average. And so they are struggling. They are falling behind the group of children that they're in with in school. And um, there was actually a really good study done by um, Cohen et al. looking at uh, Chinese-born uh, uh, international adoptees. And he looked at the girls um, within the first two years of coming home, three years of coming home, and they were doing great on all of the standardized language tests that were given. He then looked at them again when they were school age. They were still doing great on all the standardized language tests that he gave them. But he then tested a peer child or another child in each of the girls' schools who was from the same neighborhood, um, you know, but English-speaking their entire lives. And when he compared the Chinese adoptees to the other kids in the school who were age-matched to them, then there were significant differences between the group because the children from the surrounding community were actually above average for the most part, and the international adopted children were just average. So I think for some kids who parents are reporting more subtle language issues, you know, we had to get a tutor to help him keep up. He's not learning to read quite as quickly as other children. Um, it's a little bit of a matter of the comparison peer group um, that many of our children are going into. It's such a good point because you are so right. Even even if the 
um, public schools or private schools from the public schools that pull from the upper middle class uh, area, um, you would expect to see scores that are are different. And, and in fact, mm-hmm. kid is average, whether the kid is adopted or not adopted, an average kid uh, doesn't fare as well in some of these schools, quite frankly. Correct. Now, now, we were talking about children who were adopted uh, two and under. What about, and I know you don't have huge amounts of research, but has there been other research out there that talks about children adopted, say, as toddlers or, or even even older? But let's say, for now, let's say, you know, toddler age, since we see more kids coming over at that age range. Yeah, good question. Um, I'm, I've, As I said, I'm starting to look at kids adopted at age three, at age four, and age five, and I have a, a cluster cohort of kids adopted at each of, of those levels that I'm following up through. What I'm finding is that the three-year-olds don't look a whole lot different from the kids adopted as two-year-olds um, by the time we follow them out and um, are looking at them uh, at ages six and seven. Um, what I do see is that the children who are adopted at ages four and five, um, slightly more of them are tending to have issues as I'm following them up through school age. But what I'm really finding is a lot of variability. So there are some children I'm studying who were adopted as four-year-olds, lived in orphanages in poor parts of Russia their entire lives, have every knock against them that you would think would be out there, and they're coming home and they're testing off the charts at the top of the scales, you know, three years post-adoption in English language skills. But then I also have children who, you know, are adopted at age four and we see the other end of the spectrum as well. And so there's just what I see in the older kids is there's just so much variability um, in outcomes and it's really um, difficult to say where that variability comes from because in some of the background histories, some of the kids who I think should be doing the worst are doing the best and then vice versa. But I do think that, that we, across all areas we talk about the fact that the older the child is at adoption, the more likely you will be to have developmental issues. Um, and I certainly think that that does hold true for language learning as well. But I want to say that that's true, but the majority of children that I follow end up doing just fine. Now, is there the second part of Sophie's question is, let me stop, let me thank you for actually, so often when we talk about research, one of the things I find is that we focus on the 20% or or the the 15%, and and it's almost a throwaway statement we make. And I am as guilty as anybody else as a a profound research geek uh, who who, Mm -hmm. uh, loves reading about research. It's a throwaway statement. Uh, Yeah, I mean, 80% are just fine. But then we spend all the time, and and the entire paper is written on the 20%, so it is important, uh, so I... I appreciate that that you're that you're you're focusing on that. The second part of Sophie's question was, um, can parents? Is there anything that parents can do when their children are first home? I, I think that that if I understand uh, you correctly, that for a few kids, the the twenty percent, their uh, expressive language skills seem to be catching up uh, relatively well. It is their comprehensive language skills, which get taxed more when children enter, not even kindergarten, but, you know, first grade, when when the expectations of reading and writing start kicking in, um, that some Mm -hmm. children seem to fall, uh, some internationally adopted children um, seem to fall behind. 
are there specific things that parents can do to help their children with the uh, expressive we know, we just interact with our children, talk to our children, read to our children, mm-hmm. and you know, create a very verbal environment for our kids. But what about that comprehensive language? Are there things that parents can do to try to help their, make certain their kids are in the 80%, not the 20%? I think by the time kids get to school age, the, the comprehension issues get get more complicated, and that is it's not just a lot of times we think of younger kids of, of giving them experiences, reading books to them, teaching them, uh, and we're sort of, sort of focused on vocabulary. Um, most of the kids that I follow have great vocabularies. They're, they're in these you know homes where there's high socioeconomic status, parents are educated, parents are reading to their kids, they're giving them rich life experiences. When I test the children, if there's one area that's going to be above average, it's always vocabulary. And, and that's great, and, I, and, and kids need those experiences. Where we see the breakdown happening at school age is the ability to comprehend um, very, very complex language. So if I give you a multi-step instruction, and you have to remember all the components of the instruction while you are carrying it out. Um, that's the sort of skill where we start to see breakdown occurring. Um, and what a lot of us are, are talking about now, um, it's a small research community, but, but when we get together and talk, um, for a lot of these kids, the issue is uh, weak working memory skills. And working memory um so there's different kinds of memory. So straight auditory memory is if I just give you some digits and say three five two one, repeat it back to me, or I give you a list of words like uh, block, ball, pencil, repeat that back to me. You don't have to do any processing. You just need to hold that in memory and then spit it back. In working memory, um, that's more like when you're doing a math problem and you've got a multi-step math problem. And so first you need to add four plus three. And you need to then mentally hang on to the number that you get, which is seven, and then now take that number and times it by two, and take that number and times that by two. And at each step along the way, you have to remember all of the instructions you were given so that you know every step that you have to do on the problem, and you have to hold something in memory while you're doing the next step. And many of the directions that kids are given to follow in school require this working memory skill. They have to be remembering what they were told while they're doing the task, getting information, and then processing the next step. And what we find is that a lot of internationally adopted children have weak working memory abilities, and you see it across a number of um, areas that you can assess them. Language language? one. Oh, oh, so their weak working memory is across, uh, across the learning spectrum or just in language? It goes across the learning spectrum. So when we test language, we we find it in terms of weak abilities in in remembering and following directions that have complex working memory demands. But you see it in math. You can also have it in in reading as well. Um, And so that's where a lot of us are suspecting that a lot of the breakdown is happening, is that for a number of these children, there's very, very weak working memory abilities and then you're seeing these subtle school-age issues popping up because they're they're not as adept as the other kids in their classroom at retaining the information while they're processing the information. Well, then are there things that parents can do um, with their newly adopted young children, preschool age, 
to work on the working memory. We've already encouraged people to create the language-rich environment. So, I mean, are there specific things that you could recommend for parents to do um, just in the process, not of as a rigid uh, educational setting, but just in the process of living and loving with kids? Yeah, I, I think part of it is as you're playing, um, if the child's developmentally ready for it, throwing in some more complicated directions. So, for example, if I give you the direction um, after you point to the ball, touch the dog, um, you're doing the two steps um, in the order of the direction I gave you. So you're going to um, point to the ball first and then you're going to, uh, you're going to touch the ball first and then point to the dog. But if I flip that and say before you touch the ball, point to the dog, you've got to hold that direction in memory and then you have to flip the order of the direction and 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 then do it in the opposite sequence of how it was originally given to you. And those kinds of language skills, and, and most kids can't start doing those kinds of tasks until they're closer to four and five, but when a child starts to be developmentally ready for it, throwing in slightly more nuanced instructions to follow that require a child to sort of hold on to the information and process it, um, it before responding um, would be really good things to do. And you can do that in play. If you're playing with a dollhouse, you know, just, you know, the mommy doll gives instructions to the baby doll and the baby doll has to follow them. And you might put in one of those little before and after kinds of sequences to it. Um, you know, probably, I, I I'm don't believe my brain. They're probably games that um, do that too. You know, just games you could play with your children. I'm, I'm not thinking mm-hmm. of any right now. Do you know of any? Yeah, that, I'm not either. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, of course, because we're on air. Um, I'll, I'll think on that. Um, we're probably going to do a video uh, uh, on this. I'll think on that because there are definitely you know children's games even that. Mm-hmm. Um, would require because I know exactly what you're saying. It's just uh, rather than saying things one at a time from a language standpoint, add a few things together. And I love the idea of kind of reversing it because as you were saying, mm-hmm. you know, before you do X, do Y. I was thinking, okay, wait a minute, which do I do first? Yeah, <laughs> what, what am I doing? I have yeah. a, I have a, yeah, a workout in a minute. Yeah, I did. You're yeah, exactly so right. I, I have <laughs> terrible working memory, so I sympathize a lot with these kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm thinking, well, there you go. Um, but perhaps I mm-hmm. need to work on that as well. One of my kids had a um, auditory processing issue, and there was uh, we found that some of the most fun games to play that mm-hmm. required listening and rep- and and repeat. And we just we'd play them as a family, and uh, they were just a lot of fun um, for all of us. Um, yeah, do, do there you, are. I, I will say there are a lot of online. Um, programs that you can um, subscribe to that systematically in in more of a drill fashion uh, purport to improve auditory and and working memory, both visual and auditory. A lot of them are aimed at adults. There's a lot out there right now for, you know, seniors who are starting to forget things of train your brain kinds of software programs. But there are some for younger kids. Um, And I'm not advocating one over another because I I don't know enough about the research um, to say this program is better than that one. But I have seen enough research that for some kids, um, these programs are successful, and and I'm talking here more school-age kids, like first grade and up, at training them to improve some of these attention and working memory skills. Um, And particularly, there's one little boy who I followed for a long time who, you know, even from the get-go when he first came home at age three, 
struggled with language all the way through. Um, always did just well enough that he never quite qualified for, for services, but certainly was below average, um, below most children and definitely below average from the other kids who were in school with him. And when he came back to see me at age eight, he was just a different child. He had an attention span for one thing, um, and he could really focus on directions and instructions. And when I asked his parents what, what happened between the last time I saw him and this time because he's a different kid, um, they over the summer had um, signed him up for one of these intensive computer-based memory training programs. Um, and they really felt that that was the difference in, in how he was doing. So I only have experience with, with one child going through it, but there is evidence out there that for some children um, that that is a way to improve some of the uh, attention and working memory issues. I would just throw out a caution, um, and this is, comes from a, a kind of a, a basic philosophy I have, and that is for young children, I don't I don't want to see them sitting in front of a computer and doing anything. No, no. For little kids, they need to be doing it with you, but there are ways if the parent wants to go on and do the mm-hmm. program, understand what the program is doing. And it doesn't take long to kind of see what the program is trying to do and then incorporate that when the child is sitting in the grocery cart and you're pushing it around, you know, and, and right. making it a part of your everyday life. An eight-year-old, I might feel differently, but um, but certainly for um, a little bitty kid, they need to be um, yeah. with their mom and their dad doing this. And I agree with you. I'm talking this for school-age kids, and most of these programs are set up that you're only on the computer, I think, 30 minutes, and then, yeah. and then you're off again. Yeah. So um, you know, yeah. not, not all day, and, and I right. wouldn't expect that alone to be the miracle cure. But um, if you've got a school-age child who's struggling with some of these issues, I'd say you might want to... You know, just go online and, and start exploring some of these mm-hmm. programs that are out there. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. We want to again thank our gold sponsors for their support. One gold sponsor is Cryos International. They are a New York-based sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Um, as with before, all of our gold sponsors, you can click on their logo on our site and get more information. Today we're talking about language development in internationally adopted children. Our guest is Dr. Sharon Glennon. She is a professor and chairperson at Towson. I said that correctly. Towson University in Maryland, and she researches uh, in the area of language acquisition for internationally adopted kids. Do you see language acquisition acquisition differing if you adopt a sibling group? It just occurs to me that you know sibling groups can then maintain a language communication, or maybe they don't often, but but they can communicate with each other in their native language. And and I don't know how that would impact their acquisition of uh, of English. What do you, what have you seen or, or read in, in the research? Um, I've followed a few kids who are sibling groups. When they're really little, I don't think there's any impact at all there um, because they're just not talking enough in the native language before they come home to um, really feed off each other to keep that language continuing. In older children, though, especially if you've got a member of the sibling who um, started to learn to read and go to school in the home country before uh, being adopted, um, then you definitely see a slowing in the acquisition of English. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I always um, advise that if there's any way to maintain that first language while the child's in process of learning uh, the new language, that that's probably going to be a beneficial 
um, experience for the child because they can help transition and scaffold one language on the other. Unfortunately, uh, most of us as adoptive parents aren't anywhere near fluent enough to help our children maintain their birth languages. And just bringing in someone, you know, once a week or going to a language school once or twice a week isn't going to be enough to maintain it either. But um, yeah. but you do see if there's, especially an older child in the sibling group, um, the uh, language acquisition in English does get delayed a little. You know, one of the things that always amazes me is how quickly children will lose their first language. How hard is it uh, for children to maintain fluency in their birth language, assuming that their adoptive family is not fluent, uh, even if the adoptive family has certain, you know, you know, um, polite type phrases and things like that that they can use. Mommy, Daddy, where's the bathroom? I love you very much. Things like that. But assuming that they don't go much past that in the child's native language, how realistic is it to assume that a child uh, would be able to keep their uh, fluency in their native language? If, if the parents aren't speaking it, um, they're going to lose that native language uh, very, very quickly. Uh, Boris Gindis, uh, who is a uh, psychologist who works uh, in the New York City area, has a lot of anecdotal information on children who he looked at adopted from Russia. And what he says is even children who are coming home at ages four and five, that within um, four months of adoption, the language production starts to degrade so that if you tried to assess their language production in Russian, it would not test out as normal for age. Um, and by one year home, all comprehension of the language is just gone. And I know I saw this. I, I happened to have a student working with me who um, was Russian-born, and her family emigrated here to the United States, and she got involved um, helping me assess some of the children. And when we were first talking about the kids coming in, she was like, oh, no, 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 they'll retain their language. I, it's got to be there. Um, and uh, the very first child she saw was a child who was adopted from Russia at, I think, age four and had only been home six months. And so she, while she was working with the child, just started throwing in a little bit of Russian here or there. And the child just looked at her like she was clueless. Um, and after it was all over, the student came to me. She said, you're right. They forgot all the Russian. <laughs> so it was pretty much gone. <laughs> well, you know, should so, parents, uh, how hard should parents push and I ask this because there are some people who believe, and I'm going to quote from a psychologist who says, any attempt at external reinforcement of the first language for a child who has either language delays or is emotionally and behaviorally immature or has learning disabilities of any sort may lead to undue strain on the child and should not be encouraged. Um, you know, you were saying that you do encourage parents to try to maintain the language, but if it's ultimately going to be doomed, I mean, does it make sense? Not only is, would it, does it make sense if it's going to be doomed, but I guess the real question is, it, could it be harmful? That's the question I meant to ask. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not really an expert on answering the harmful question. Um, you know, I, I look at language more from a, a linguistic perspective and, and not as much from the social-emotional perspective. You know, I, I have heard of people who... Um, anecdotally talked about the language bringing you back bad memories. And, and I would think maybe for a child who's adopted at a much older age, uh, you know, some of that may be true. For the kids who come home at really young ages, I, I just think they lose that birth language so quickly um, that within a few months, uh, if you speak it to them, um, 
there's very, very little reaction to it um, emotionally or, or from an understanding point of view. Um, I think for the youngest kids, it's not really that important for the parents to try to maintain the first language at all. Where it becomes more important is if you're adopting a five- or a six-year-old and they're starting school right away, um, if there's a way for them to use the language skills they have to start figuring out what's happening in school, they're just going to be more comfortable in that environment. They're going to be able to focus on learning in that environment. If everything's suddenly thrown at them in English and they're expected to start school and learn what all the kids are doing and how to play the games and how to read and, and everything else, until they have gotten proficient in English, um, there's no way to teach them. I always talk about the fact that when we have a child who's bilingual going to school, if the teacher's trying to teach a particular concept and the child's not getting it, you can go back through the other language and try to teach it again. Mm -hmm. When you've got an internationally adopted child who's not fully proficient in English, if they're not understanding a concept or a topic in English, there is no back door to go through. They just aren't going to get it. And so that's where maintenance of the first language, if it's possible, um, is beneficial to these older children. Well, I just always fundamentally think that if any language that any any language that we can add to our portfolio of of, of fluency helps us throughout life. I mean, it helps us as an adult. It helps us for travel. It helps us potentially for work. So it just always makes sense to me that. And I've often wondered, okay, if a child, let's say a child has been adopted at a young age, but originally had heard other sounds. Uh, well, I'll give an example. My uh, One of my children and I uh, took uh, uh, language lessons in her uh, first language. Now, she was adopted young and had none of it. And she and I took, she was probably eight or nine, uh, and she and I took together. Now, whether or not she was just naturally more gifted at languages, I don't know, but she certainly had a better pronunciation than I did. And I wondered if that was on some level because she had heard that language uh, for the first months of her life. On the other hand, you know, it could also just be that she's more gifted in that area. So have you seen that that uh, children adopted internationally have an easier time acquiring a foreign language in school because of that early exposure? When I first started down this research pathway, I would have fully agreed with you. Um, and, and I fully thought that my own two children adopted from Russia one day would just have a real easy time of learning Russian because they already had heard the language and had some exposure to it. And my children were a little bit older, so they were speaking a few words at the time of adoption. Um, there have since been some studies uh, looking at this, and, and one of the most interesting ones was done over in France um, by a uh, researcher named Depalier. And what he did was took... Um, children who were Korean-born and then adopted to France, and all of these children were now adults. Um, some of them came home when they were infants with very little exposure to Korean before adoption. Some of them came home at, you know, five, six, and seven years of age. And now they're adults. You know, French is now their first language. And he put them in MRIs so that he could see what was happening in their brain when it was exposed to different language stimulation. And he had them listen to French, 
He had them listen to Korean, which was their birth language. And then he had them listen to, I think it was two other languages that they probably would have never heard before in their lives, like Swahili and Polish or something like that. Um, and then he looked at how did the language areas of their brain light up when they were listening to all of these different languages. And what he found was that when they listened to the Korean language, the brain reacted exactly the same way as when they were listening to Swahili and Polish that they'd never heard before in their lives. Um, when they were listening to French, which was now their first language, the brain reacted very, very differently um, and indeed responded to it much more you know, like you would expect a first language. And so based on, and he's done some other studies following up on that first one that pretty much is showing that if you're not using the language and your exposure to it was when you're really, really young, recognition of that language is basically gone um, by the time you're an adult. So, and, and now, while your daughter probably pronounced things better than you, is we do know that children have a better ear for that. Um, and so that's why someone who emigrates to another country, usually under the age of 10, by the time they're an adult, won't speak with an accent, whereas yeah, an adult going to another country will. Well, but would it... And now, and I, I love that. That what a well-designed study you're just talking about. I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. The one from, the, from France. But would a child who has had some exposure to another language have an easier time picking up any language simply because some part of their brain for? And I, this may not be scientific. This is. I'm speaking as a person who struggles so hard to learn a foreign language. It is simply not a gift set of mine at all. Yes, it's and not I, one of mine either. <laughs> I do, and I and I I want it so bad. Uh, but <laughs> I've wondered if children who, because they they you know say the first two years of life were exposed to one, so they've had to really learn more or less two languages, even if that other language is totally alien to them now, it's not at all, you know, doesn't light up their their, their brain as, 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 in, as a recognition pattern, but would that early exposure predispose them to having an easier time to pick up any other language because of, you know, the, the fact that that part of their brain had been expanded at some point, or is this all bunk? <laughs> I, well, no, I'm going to say yes and no. So we do know that when we look at children who are bilingual or, or trilingual and, and, and when they become adults, if they are proficient in more than one language, um, studies comparing those individuals with people who are just monolingual, who only speak one language, does show that there are certain um, skill sets in language that they're just better at. Um, one of the things that they're better at is um, you know, being able to pay attention to two things at once uh, because a lot of times uh, early on when, when they're in the process of learning language, they're constantly translating from one language to another and then back again. So you have to be paying attention to what's happening in the language that you're listening to while in your mind you're mentally translating it over to the you know, language that you might know better. That's a working memory skill that we were talking about earlier today. Um, and so we do know that it does give some advantages um, in terms of thinking ability, processing ability, and all sorts of things to someone. Yeah, but who, those are bilingual um, children. And the interesting thing about mm -hmm. internationally adopted kids is because they lose their language. It, you know, people always try to compare internationally adopted kids to children of immigrants, and yet it seems to me they are quite different because an immigrant child they are very different. 
it's bilingual, but a it's almost like it is uh, uh, the uh, uh, subsequent monolingualism is more like what we see with internationally adopted kids. Isn't that right? Right, and, and and that in some degrees causes some slight detriments to the new language that these kids are acquiring. And, and, and so going back to that study where we talked about the children adopted from Korea to France, um, what they also found in that particular study is when the Korean adoptees were listening to French, which is now their first language, and they compared their MRIs to adults who had been French-speaking their whole lives, and French was the first language that they learned, that the two groups processed the language differently, and that the adopted Korean children um, were not, were having to use more of their brain to process the French language than the children who were monolingual from birth. One of the things that I'm finding in my research with internationally adopted children is when they get to school age, um, if I test what we call their word retrieval speed, and that is if I ask you to name some things as rapidly as possible, and I look at you know how quickly you're able to pull that word up from memory and, and say it to me, they are slightly slower, and it's a significant slight, than a child who's spoken English their entire life. And so I think when a child is internationally adopted and they start learning their new first language later in life, it doesn't quite get stored in the brain the same way as that original first language did. And so the the proficiency at being able to pull up words and put them together and string them together in sentences, I always like to say it's just like a half second off. Um, And for someone who has really, really good language skills, you wouldn't even notice the difference. Um, But as soon as you get a child who has weaker language skills, add in the impact of that slightly slower processing ability, and then you've got some real language learning issues going on. Um, And one of the things I find fascinating is some of the kids who I followed who have above average test scores in everything I test them in. They just have great, great, great language skills. As soon as I test their word retrieval, how rapidly can they pull up these words for me, they uh, test low average, every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and know, I think it's just a matter of where the language is stored. And that makes such good sense as to what a lot of parents report that they see of their kids in school that e- even though they're they're doing fine, they're on grade level or whatever, Mm-hmm. I hear this a lot, and I don't know if you do or not. And this is not research-based; it's just anecdotal. But that even though they, you know, they're fine, they're within the normal range. But the parents still say, "But given where they are in other subjects, it's like they're just a step behind in mm-hmm. in, in the in the across the board the the language areas, be it writing yeah. or, or reading." And and that makes such good sense if you think that they're having to. Just incrementally, but work a little harder. Their brains, the paths are not quite as efficient. Uh, and, Correct. And, and then hence with a child who, a really bright kid, probably would never even notice it because they will compensate. But a child who is a more average or even just not quite as bright, you know, just even maybe just slightly below average, then it probably would jump out and, and all of a sudden look like more of an issue, I would think. Correct. Correct. And, and so for a lot of kids, I, I think the working memory issue that we talked about earlier is underlying a lot of the more subtle language learning problems that we're seeing in these kids. And then this slow word retrieval speed is the other um, impacting issue. 
Um, and again, for kids who have really, really great language skills, even if you're average in these other two areas, you'll do fine. Um, but if your language skills are on the lower side of average, but still normal, if you add in these other impacting factors, then suddenly you're really struggling in school. Yeah, that's fascinating. Here's a question from Cicely. She says, our three-year-old son, 40 months, from Ghana, was not really fluent in any language due to his impoverished family and their lack of talking to him much. We are told this by the orphanage workers. He has been home only six months. How will his lack of much language for his first three years affect his language acquisition? You know, we're we're assuming that some children, uh, we're assuming that most children come with a fluency in a language if they're, say, a three-year-old. In this case, he did not have uh, fluency. He did not have up to a three-year, uh, three-year-old fluency in any language. So how will yeah. that affect him? I, I think the key would be, what was he at least talking at all at the point of adoption? And, and there have been several studies um, looking at internationally adopted children that show when you're adopting kids like that two- and three-year-old age range that the kids who are at least doing some talking tend to have pretty good outcomes. It's the kids who aren't talking at all that um, you need to be really worried about. So if he was talking a little, even if he was delayed, I'd be a little less worried about him. Um, once he comes home, I would just be looking for that real quick takeoff in English. Um, again, what I find is in the three-year-olds is within one year of uh, adoption, comprehension is falling in the normal range. That doesn't mean they fully caught up in comprehension, but just that if I test them, they're going to have a score that wouldn't qualify for them for speech and language services. And language production is coming along almost as rapidly um, in catching up as well. So a child who's home six months, uh, who was adopted at three, I would expect to be putting together, you know, some simple sentences, comprehending most of what, say, an average two-year-old um, to a uh, young three-year-old might be comprehending around them, and really seeing that very, very rapid takeoff in English language learning. And if you're not seeing that rapid takeoff, you know, then I would get concerned. And if a parent is to get concerned, what should they do about it? How do they? What type of specialist should they seek to get help for a child uh, who um, is newly adopted or has been home a period of time? Well, I guess there's two questions here. One, how long should you wait before you worry? And and if and after that period of time, if you are worried, what type of help is the best help to get? Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on whether you're just concerned about language or whether you have other developmental concerns about your child. So if if you're sort of sensing some overall developmental issues and concerns, um, you know, certainly start with your pediatrician. Um, and, and if it's a developmental pediatrician, all the better. Um, if you think everything else is just fine, your child's attaching well, uh, you know, motor skills seem good, uh, the child has great social-emotional um, affect when they're around you, they've got good appetite, um, and you're just concerned about, you know, I just don't think he's catching up as rapidly as he should in English, then you can go straight to a speech-language pathologist and um, ask them to do an initial assessment of the child. Um, now, assessing newly arrived children is really tricky. Um, part of my research and the reason why I got into it was to develop guidelines on what should we expect in newly adopted children and when should we get worried. Um, and if you um, go to uh, my website, um, 
and then follow along to some of the articles that are there. There are some um, clear guidelines for kids adopted under age two as to if you're not seeing the child saying this many words by this point post-adoption, then you should be worried and you should um, go ask for um, an evaluation by a speech-language pathologist. Um, for the kids who are adopted after age two, um, the waters get a little bit more muddy. Um, I do have some very preliminary um, work out there on at what point you should get worried. Um, but um, I would still, if, if you're worried about it, and especially the first six months a child is home, I always say just give them time to adjust. <laughs> you know, don't, don't get yeah. worried yet. Um, after that point, if you're not seeing a really quick takeoff in English, then you might want to have them assessed by someone else, especially if you have that background history that there was a problem in the birth language uh, before adoption. So if, if you've got it well documented that this was a child who wasn't talking at age three um, in the home country, I always say to families, it's not like the adoption itself is going to miraculously um, make that problem go away. The child's mm -hmm. certainly in a better environment to learn language, but whatever was causing that child to not learn language is, is probably um, still an issue there. Now, you said go to a language speech pathologist. Is is are they is there any specific criteria that you should look for when seeking out a professional for help? So, um, in so when you go to see a speech language pathologist, um, if a child is under age three you can go through what are called the infant-toddler programs that are associated with the uh, school system that you uh, reside in. Um, and just have someone take a look at how your child is doing developmentally in terms of, of speech and language abilities. As soon as children are over three, um, you can uh, you know, go privately or you can go to a, a children's hospital or you can contact your local school um, and there are programs in every state for kids three and up. Um, in terms of getting initial assessment. Um, I think the trickiest part for internationally adopted children is that initial evaluation piece. And because there will be delays, these kids are in the process of learning English, try and find someone who's seen other internationally adopted children who knows that there are guidelines out there for internationally adopted children and knows how to use them. Um, and these guidelines, are the ones you, just like these guidelines are the ones that, that I talked about. And, and then yes. there's some other researchers who have some out there as well. Once the diagnosis has been made, so after someone says, yes, this child is delayed and, and they need extra help, um, at that point, I always remind people international adoption is not the diagnosis. Maybe, you know, the child's birth country and issues there were the cause of why the child's behind. But once we know the child's delayed in a certain area of speech or language, you would go ahead and treat them just like you would any other child who had the same kinds of delays. So you don't necessarily need the specialist for the treatment part. You may want to seek someone with international adoption experience to help um, evaluate the child. That makes good sense. Thank you so much, Dr. Glennon, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Now, everybody's going to want your website, so let me give it to you. Um, it is uh, the easiest way to find out about the guidelines is to get to Dr. Glennon's uh, page at her university. So let me get, what we're going to do is tell you how to get there. Towson, T-O-W-S-O-N dot E-D-U slash A-S-L-D. I think it's Auditory Speech Language Deaf, uh, A-S-L-D. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then there will be a button that says faculty. You click on that, then you click on her name, Glennon, G-L-E-N-N-E-N. And, uh, and then from there, you will be able to find the guidelines. Uh, to stay in touch with the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, please sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. The UN estimates that there are 143 million orphans in the world, including 107,000 currently available for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. These kids, as well as the millions of older children throughout the world, deserve a home. To get more information about the U.S. kids waiting for a family, you can go to our uh, homepage, click on the Waiting Child under um, logo on the, uh, not logo, I'm sorry, words, Waiting Child, on the top left-hand side under the What's New box. And it will take you to a page where we have pictures of certain waiting children as well as we will have um, listings of the uh, various photo listings for U.S. children. Thanks for joining us today, and I will not see you next week. I'm going to be speaking at the National Adoption Conference, but the week after, I will see you then. Thanks so much, and thank you again, Dr. Glenning. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, a pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.